0: Oh, good, morning. good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Now, you all have heard about the water incident down at the south end of the building, right? Yeah. you guys get the email? I don't know maybe Ben said something about it earlier, but uh yeah, it was uh over in less than twelve hours' time over seventeen thousand gallons of water. <laughs> So, uh, so yeah, it was a mess, it uh, still looks like a mess, but it was really a mess on Wednesday when we came into the office and, and uh, uh, I'm, you know it's a triple classroom just all over the place and, and in the offices and individual offices. The, the, the funny thing about it though, my office, it's all a cement slab down there, right? So it's all the same level. My office didn't have a drop of water, and everybody else had water damage in their offices and all, and uh, and I know it's just coincidence, but it reminded me of the 10 plagues in Egypt and how the Egyptians <laughs> suffered all that, but God's people, you know, were protected, and I know it's just coincidence, but it does make you wonder, so... Uh, <laughs> Uh you gotta laugh. I mean, what else are you gonna do? You know, like uh, what Kurt and Phil were doing, you're gonna cry? You know, no, I'm not I'm not going that way. So you gotta laugh. Well, when you think about the Bible, a number of things immediately come to mind, right? And and one of the most obvious of all things that comes to mind is Jesus. Because uh, when you open the Bible, even if you're in the Old Testament, I mean, so many spotlights are pointed at Jesus, and, and uh, as far as his coming, and, and his sacrifice, and, and his teachings, and his run-ins with religious leaders, and so many things about Jesus. And one of the things that, you know, we definitely do not want to overlook are his miracles, and that's what this series is all about. We're looking at seven of his miracles that are found in the Gospel of John. So it's going to be a seven-part series. Kurt started the series last week. We'll go on for five more weeks. There were lots of miracles. As a matter of fact, if, uh, if you look at all four Gospels, and you know some of them, the stories are repeated from one Gospel to another, Once in a while, there's a miracle in a gospel that's not found in any of the others. But what you end up coming up with is a grand total of 37 miracles that we see detailed in the gospels. But 37, that's far from being the total number of miracles that Jesus performed. Look at this passage in Matthew chapter 4. It says, News about him spread as far as Syria, and people soon began bringing to him all who were sick. And whatever their sickness or disease, or if they were demon-possessed or epileptic or paralyzed, he healed them all. So there you're looking at a verse that we're not giving any details about those, but it's drawing reference to how many miracles. That's anybody's guess. I mean, that could be dozens, dozens and dozens Of miracles right there. And there are other verses similar to that verse in Matthew chapter 4. So, yeah, we can look in the Gospels and we can draw attention to, put our finger on, 37 specific miracles that Jesus performed. But then you're fully aware of the fact that there are many, many more that we don't know the details. About The one that we're going to be looking at today is found in this passage of scripture. So what I'd like to do is I would like to read this passage. So it's John chapter 4, starting in verse 46. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine, which is what Kurt talked about last week. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus replied, you may go, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, uh, the fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and all of his household believed. All right, so this is what we're going to spend our time talking about today. As part of the story, it involves a government official coming to Jesus. He was coming from Capernaum. Capernaum was over on the coast of the Sea of Galilee, and Cana was about 20 miles away from there. So so that was the distance he had to travel. Now, Jesus had, as Kurt talked about last week, you know, change the water to wine in Cana, and that's where he's back at, but he hasn't been there the whole time because he left and he went down into Judea, and he actually did some more miracles while he was down in Judea, but while he was gone, the word about that miracle of changing the water to wine, it was spreading, you know, throughout that part of Galilee. And they were also starting to get word of other things that Jesus was doing down in Judea. So now uh, now Jesus comes back to Cana. Word comes to this dad that Jesus is there. And so he makes a beeline to go to Jesus and to plead with Jesus to come and help because his son was so sick. Now, sometimes, I want to pause just for a moment, just just to say this so that we take a breath and we slow down a little bit, sometimes we read these stories and we just kind of look at them as being print on paper. That's, you know, it's just a story. It's recorded there, and we try to glean from it whatever lessons we can glean, you know, whatever, whatever insights or principles we can get from it, but, but that's about as far as we take it you know, on any kind of a personal level. We forget that these were real people with flesh and blood and emotions, just like you and me. And so this story is a case in point, is, is let's recognize, again, the fact that this is a story of a man who had a son who was dying, okay? So you, you just think about where this guy is at emotionally, You think about where he's at mentally right now. His son could go at any time. We don't know the nature of his son's illness, except that it involved a high fever and that he was at the point of death. Other than that, we don't have any details that are given to us. Now, if you've lived any length of time, you know that this can be one of the darkest and deepest of fears that a grown-up can experience is the fear of their child dying. I mean, there's a number of other bad things that can happen in our lives once we become adults, but this, it's it's hard to come up with much that is worse than this. The thought of a child dying, that somehow, someday, an accident or an illness or through some other means, a child will be taken from you and will pass away. Nothing seems more unnatural than the death of a child. You know, a parent bearing their child, it's not supposed to work that way. You ever heard anyone say that? Yeah, I have a bunch of times. And I'm sure I've said that as well. It's not supposed to work that way. Yet you look at the Bible, and the very first death that is recorded in human history... It wasn't a parent, it was a child, it was a son. You read about that in Genesis chapter 4. This guy, he was a government official, and whatever responsibilities came with his position, he, they all took a back seat to what was going on with his son right now. That was the priority. And so that's when he heard that Jesus was back in Cana without hesitation. He was going to go there. And he did. He went there. He traveled 20 miles. He found Jesus. And without missing a beat, you know, without going through any of formalities of any type, he got right to the point. He was very simple. He was very direct in saying, sir, come down before my son dies. I need you to come. He understood that time was of the essence as far as his son. We don't know how long his son had been sick, but long enough that the dad knew time was of the essence. And so, how did Jesus respond to that? He says, You may go, your son will live. Jesus had never met this child, he was still 20 miles away from this child. For this miracle to actually work, it would be a long-distance miracle. But none of that was going to interfere with what Jesus was going to do because distance was a non-factor in all of this. So he says, you may go, your son will live. And this is the response the dad took Jesus at his word and departed. We're seeing the first indication of faith here. Because that's, that's kind of the way faith acts, right there. He took Jesus at his word, and he started heading home. Some of you know this, you know it deep down inside, that it is not uncommon to see faith blossom in the middle of a crisis. Sometimes it's during the dark days of a trial, of a hardship, that you and your family is going through. Whether it be a financial struggle that you're going through, whether it be an ugly divorce that you experience, or whether it be an extended illness of some kind, or even the death of a loved one, it's sometimes in the middle of a crisis. That's when faith begins to surface. For some of you here, that's part of your story. When you look back over your shoulder and you think about when it was that you started getting serious about the Lord, you started taking the message that's found in this book in a serious way and changing the, the, the way you were approaching living your life and everything. When you trace that back, it was in the middle of, of some difficulties, It might have been a relationship that meant the world to you, and you were only 23 years old, and that relationship fell apart, and it just, your world crashed in around you. And it was at that particular moment that you began to open up to the Lord. You began to look to a relationship that would never crumble apart. Or maybe it was through a serious illness, a brush with death that you experienced. Or maybe it was through the death of a loved one, and you heard people talk about the hope that you have, people have, of seeing them on the other side of death. And you thought, I want that kind of hope. And maybe that was a turning point in your life. But that's one of the things that, that you realize as you observe people around you, that the turning point in the life of a lot of people is in the middle of a crisis, And I think some of that's going on right here in this story that we have in front of us. You know, it is biblical. There are passages of Scripture that support that. The longest chapter in the Bible is Psalm 119. And in verse 67, we read this. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. So basically, the psalm writer is saying that, well, before... I kind of did what I wanted to do. I was, I, was, I was living my life my way. I was calling the shots. But then when he went through or she went through whatever adversity and all that they went through at that time, it ended up being a turning point where they became responsive to the Lord. It was a wake-up call for them. That other verse is only four verses later. It says, it was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. So it's like, what role did God's word play in this person's life at one time? Well, not a very significant role, but after going through adversity of whatever nature that was, then all of a sudden God's word became very meaningful to them. You see, that's what I'm talking about here. That's the kind of impact sometimes that a crisis can have. You remember the story of Job. And it's not like Job was an unbeliever or an ungodly person. You look at the very first couple of verses in Job chapter 1 and we see that he was a man of character and he feared God. But then he went through everything that he went through, which involved losing his children, it involved losing his health, Going through who knows how long of a stretch of time of being very sickly himself. But after he goes through all of that, you fast forward to the very end of Job, and what is it you hear Job saying? Chapter 42, verse 5. He says, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Basically, what he's acknowledging here is he's had a whole different place than he was before he's at at a deeper level in his walk with the lord than he was before people described him as a godly person a god-fearing man and all of this but but later job as he looks back on it all and says man i i i wasn't nearly where i am now in my walk with the lord and it was all that crisis and hardship that he went through That played a significant role in bringing that to pass. This government official, no doubt he was powerful and he was influential. And I think, you know, it's probably safe to say he was wealthy as well. That's just speculation on my part. He was accustomed to giving orders and having those orders carried out. He was a person most likely that regularly had people coming to him to have problems solved. But now he has a problem himself he can't solve it but he hears about the one who can and so he's not going to waste any time and he's going to go to him he's going to go to jesus and you look at the way that the story ends in that passage i'll pick it up uh, in the middle of verse fifty, says the man took Jesus as word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, the fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and all of his household believed. They they became believers. It wasn't just the dad. I mean, he he officially now was a believer. He He was a follower of Christ at this time. But it wasn't just him. It was his household. Now, wait a minute. Some of his household hadn't been there when the dad was talking to Jesus. Well, you think the dad was keeping quiet about this? He was telling everybody. Because he knew full well this was no coincidence that Jesus said he is well. And then halfway home, I get a message delivered to me and told me what time he got well. That wasn't a coincidence that those times matched up. So he became a believer. And the rest of his household became believers as well. See, it led to their salvation. Now, what purpose does John have in recording this down? I mean, yeah, it made a difference for this dad. It made a difference for everybody that lived in that house. But what's the purpose of recording it down for us? I think that's a good question. And the reality is there's more than one answer to that question. The first answer is rather obvious from the text and that is to develop and strengthen faith within us that's the purpose of why this is found in scripture because it wasn't a coincidence because jesus was the one that was behind this miracle that had taken place meaning that jesus was more than just a teacher more than just a typical rabbi John tells us toward the end of his gospel, in fact, in the second to last chapter, why he was recording down these miracles. We're spending seven weeks talking about seven of these miracles, but uh, why did John record these in his gospel account? We don't need to wonder, we don't need to guess why John tells us in chapter 20, the last two verses. It says, Jesus did many other miracles in the presence of his followers that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Then by believing, you may have life through his name. That's why it's recorded down for us. It's so that we might come to faith and so that our faith might be strengthened this is our memory verse, by the way, of today's message because it's spot on with, with why this is found in the Bible. There is value to reading and studying these different things. There is value to this series of messages that we're going to spend seven weeks to. There is value, even though uh, certain passages, whether it be these involving miracles or it be a different passage regarding a different topic, there is value to going back to them, even though you've heard three sermons on that particular passage or you've been in a small group and you've studied that in detail. There's value to going back to it and reviewing it and refreshing your memory about it is, is so that your faith might be strengthened. That's why this is recorded in Scripture for us. Look at the way Peter said it when he was giving a message to a large crowd on the day of Pentecost there in Jerusalem. It was less than two months after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, just 50 days later. Peter is, is preaching to a lot of people that live there in Jerusalem, but a lot of the out-of-towners that have come in to this feast, this festival called Pentecost. And in the middle of the message that Peter is delivering, he makes this comment. He says, people of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus, the Nazarene, by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. Peter is, I mean, he's spelling it out there in that passage that this was, this was, in a big way, God's way of putting his stamp of approval on Jesus, saying, you guys need to sit up and take notice of who he is, what he's doing, what he is saying. And that's what these miracles were about, to get people's attention. That's why the Bible several times refers to these kind of miracles as being signs and wonders, because it would cause people to sit up and take notice and wonder, whoa, what does this mean? Who is this that is talking to us? And so Peter, he, he includes this particular thought in his message on that day. And at the end of that day, There are 3,000 people that are converted to Christ that embrace Jesus in faith because the evidence was undeniable. Even people that lived out of town. I mean, the people that were in town, boy, they knew full well because they had been talking for For the longest time now, about this Jesus and the different things that he was doing and his miracles and all of this. But even people that were quite a distance away that had traveled, that maybe they had fragmented information about Jesus. But now that they're in Jerusalem, they're hearing all the talk. They're hearing it. And so it wasn't just local people that were making decisions, it was people from out of town, it was people in town that were coming to faith. Jesus said this earlier in his ministry in John 14. He said, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. You see, these miracles weren't ends in themselves just to remedy whatever the situation was someone was experiencing. But they had a further reaching purpose, and that is to plant seeds of faith and to strengthen and reinforce that faith in people's lives. Rabbis were a dime a dozen back in those days. Jesus was different. He was no ordinary rabbi. Another reason why these miracles are recorded in scripture it's not just for the purpose of developing and strengthening faith within us but it's also to show us that god is compassionate god is compassionate as john introduces his gospel he kind of does it differently than uh, say matthew or luke did theirs because they start out with you know talking about Bethlehem and baby Jesus and all of that. John, he's not talking about baby Jesus. He, he, he goes way back. And he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And, and then a few verses later, and the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And then John makes this comment in verse 18. He says, no one has ever seen God the one and only Son, the one who is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. By taking a close look at Jesus, we see God. That's part of what John is trying to communicate. And that's why John puts so much emphasis on the deity of Christ and the things that Jesus said that were driving home his deity, that he was God. When we take a close look at Jesus, we see God. By studying his actions, we gain insight into the heart of God. So, what do we see when we look at Jesus? Well, I'll tell you what we don't see. We don't see Jesus racing through his life, you know, so he can die on the cross and rise again and get out of here and get back to heaven. We don't see that. In fact, we see just the opposite. We see Jesus slowing down and touching people's lives, even literally touching people. He gave of his time for people. In Matthew chapter 8, he went up and he touched lepers. Everyone else was keeping their distance from lepers. In Matthew chapter 20, they're walking alongside the road and there are two beggars alongside the road and the disciples are trying to get them to hush up so they won't interrupt, you know, Jesus and the rest of them because they got places to go, things to do. But Jesus stops and he goes over and gives them his undivided attention. In John chapter 5, we see Jesus helping a guy who had been paralyzed for 38 years. In John chapter 6, we see Jesus feeding a multitude, which that'll be part of this series as we continue. But that's what we see. We see Jesus giving his attention to people and and caring for people. Understand, most of Jesus' miracles were aimed toward the hurts of people around him. Not all of them, there, there's, you can find an exception to that, but, but the majority of Jesus' miracles were aimed at where people were living their life and suffering and struggling. That's where Jesus' miracles were. Here's a verse that does a good job of kind of hitting the nail on the head in this regards. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 14, it says, As he stepped ashore, he saw a huge crowd felt compassion for them and healed their sick that word compassion is an interesting word in the greek it is one of those what we would or what i've referred to at a times at different times as a 50 cent word it's like a 14 or 15 letter you know um word splank is the greek word and that's probably a bit butchered but Splank nidsomai. Big word. It's the strongest Greek word for compassion. It is found a dozen times in the Gospels. Eleven of those times, is talking about Jesus. Compassion. Remember where we started on this particular point. When we see Jesus, when we zoom in on Jesus, we're seeing God. And we're better appreciating the heart of God. And what we see when we look close at Jesus is we see compassion. Jesus's miracles—I mean, they could have been—he he could have been—he could have been raising sunken fishing boats out of the Sea of Galilee, and there's a bunch of them there. In fact, if you Google that, you know, a few years ago, I mean, they—they they found a complete one that you know had been sunk down into the mud, you know how many centuries ago and, and yet they're able to to restore it and see what it looked like so there's no speculation they don't have to go by you know historians writings from the first century and all they can actually look at this thing well that's how jesus could have been proven his point that he was more than just a rabbi he could have been been raising up these sunken fishing boats out of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus could have been taking these huge rocks and raising them up in the air and maybe piling them up in various formations. man, that would have been the talk of town right Jesus could have went over to to uh, uh, a whole hillside that was covered with olive trees and he could have he could have been changing them so that now the olives were were kind of like a fortune cookie like so whenever people took an olive and, and broke it open there was a little message inside jesus could have done that but that's not that that's not the type of miracles jesus was doing jesus's miracles instead clearly was a demonstration that God is in touch with man's hurts and struggles, and pain. And some of you need to hear that today. Some of you that are listening online, you need to hear that. Because you're right in the middle of a struggle yourself. Maybe you got some awful news from a doctor not too long ago, whether that pertained directly to you, or maybe that was a family member. You know, I know we got a uh, couple families that are out of town this weekend, and the reason they're out of town is because they got family members that are dying right now. And sometimes it's in, in the middle of a moment like that we need to hear and be reminded that God really does care. He really does care, and he feels our pain. He has a heart of compassion. And by studying these miracles... You can't help but see that as you look closer and closer at what Jesus was doing. But there's more reasons. It's not just to show us that God is compassionate, and it's not just to develop and strengthen faith within us, but it's also to convince us that there is no such thing as a hopeless situation. We serve a big God, and it's good for us to be reminded of that. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 12 says that God measures the waters in the palm of his hand. Now, I haven't really checked out to see how much water I could hold in the palm of my hand, but it wouldn't be an impressive amount by measure. It'd be a small amount. But God measures the waters of the earth is what's being implied here in the palm of his hand. Nahum chapter 1 verse 3 says that the clouds are the dust around his feet. And you think about that for a moment. Now I don't know what the sky is going to look like when you leave here today after that brief storm blew through uh, earlier t- uh, early this morning, uh, but if you go outside today and you see some clouds or whether that be in a day later this week, try to remember to reflect on that thought. When you see those clouds that that's like the dust around God's feet. Oh, there is an indication God took a stroll today. Yeah. We serve a big God. A big God. Luke chapter 1 verse 37, Gabriel, the angel that delivered multiple messages in the pages of Scripture, was delivering a message to the, the Virgin Mary. And, and what he was saying to her is, nothing is impossible with God. Well, where did Gabriel come up with that? Do you read that in some book? No, I think he came up with that because he was watching over God's shoulder as God was working. And he was convinced and convicted of that reality nothing is impossible with God. And so I believe those were words of conviction that he was sharing with Mary. By examining Jesus' miracles, it demonstrates power over nature and disease and death and demons in a big way. In fact, sometimes I have encouraged people, given them a little bit of an assignment, especially like after they, uh, someone gets a, like a really bad diagnosis um, about something that it's like stage four, it's terminal, something along those lines, or someone's in a car accident, a family member, and and they're just kind of hanging on. And and I will give the family an assignment, and I'll say, as you get a chance, read Mark chapter 5. And if you can, read it two or three times. Just read it and let God speak to your heart. Because what you see in Mark chapter 5 is you see three impossible situations. Each one of them can be described as an impossible, a hopeless situation. And each time Jesus comes in and he changes. He changes the storyline where it's no longer impossible. That is the God that we serve I like the way Moses said it. When Moses was an old man, he was about ready to pass away. You know, Moses had seen a lot during his life, um, not just when he grew up in uh, Pharaoh's household, but uh, when, when he had seen the great deliverance of the Hebrews out of Egypt and everything that went on during the wilderness, wanderings and all. Well, Moses is an old man now, and he's about ready to die. And in the book of Deuteronomy, he says something to that generation of people. It's not the same generation that he had walked through the Red Sea with, because that generation was involved the parents of this generation. Sometimes when you're reading through the Old Testament, you'll be reading in Deuteronomy, and you'll be thinking, how come this sounds so similar to the things I was reading in Exodus? Well, it's because it is similar. The message, a lot of the message is the same, but it was a different audience, the, what you're reading in Exodus, that was for people like that, that were alive 40 years earlier. In Deuteronomy, it involves their children who have now come of age and their parents have passed on. And so what we read in these final days of Moses' life, he's recalling something from an earlier time in his life Uh, a conversation he had had with God, a prayer that he had. And he says this, At that time, I pleaded with the Lord and said, O sovereign Lord, you have only begun to show your greatness and the strength of your hand to me, your servant. Is there any God in heaven or on earth who can perform such great and mighty deeds as you do? And what I want you to notice here is where Moses says, you have only begun. Think about what Moses had witnessed. Moses had witnessed the 10 plagues in Egypt. Some pretty incredible things, right? Moses had witnessed the parting of the Red Sea. Moses had witnessed 40 years of everyday manna being provided by God. So people had something to eat. Moses had witnessed the fact that 40 years had passed and people's shoes didn't wear out, their clothes didn't wear out during that time. The scripture specifically spells that out. And Moses witnessed that firsthand. And as he reflected on that, what did he have to say? He says, oh, sovereign Lord, you've only begun to show your greatness. That's Moses' way of saying, oh, Lord, you're just starting to warm up, aren't you? <laughs> you know, we ain't seen nothing yet. I mean, that's kind of the attitude that Moses had in recognition of how great God is. There is no such thing as a hopeless situation when the Lord is in the picture. And that's something we need to be reminded of. Now, I want to I caution you about a mentality, and we're, we're going to kind of ramp up to our time of communion, but, but don't rush into your communion yet. I want, want you to hear this. I want to caution you about the mentality that says miracles are a thing of the past. And I know that mentality is out there. I've led enough Bible studies. I've had enough conversations. You know, not just outside the church, but inside the church. And so I know that, you know, people sometimes will say, oh, yeah, boy, back in Bible times, man, there was incredible miracles and all, but that was then, this is now. And God doesn't do that today. And I want to caution you about that, because I don't believe that. Personally, I do not believe that and have not believed that the majority of my adult life, both physically and spiritually. I do not believe that. And there's more than one reason. One is uh, Jesus hasn't changed, okay? He hasn't changed. And so to think that, well, God's different than what he used to be. No, no, that's, that's not a valid statement. Same yesterday, today, and forever. And another reason I don't believe that uh, um, miracles are a thing of the past is every morning when I wake up, and I find myself standing and looking into a mirror, I am reminded of the fact that miracles still happen. You know, because it was quite a few years ago, but when I was in my 20s, and Colette could verify this, when I was in my 20s, I did not see any way possible I was ever going to see my 30th birthday. In fact, I never thought I'd ever see my, my boys you know, go to school, kindergarten or first grade. As I had major organs that were shutting down and I was, you know, stage four cancer and, and, and I wasn't the only one thinking that. There were other people that, that were thinking that as well. But, but I did see my 30th birthday and my 40th. And I know you won't believe this, but my 50th as well. <laughs> and my 60th. Okay, we'll stop there, all right? <laughs> but but I, I see a reminder of the fact that God does do miracles. He does what no one is expecting at this point because this has now entered into that realm of being a hopeless situation. And that's where I was at the majority of that year. And yet a lot of people were praying. You know, I'm still around today. I don't see myself ever hitting 70. But, you know, I look at the fact that I am as old as I am now, and it's just like, man, all of this has been bonus. It's all been gravy. Being able to experience the added blessing and the added reminder that God does the impossible. Let me show you a passage of scripture because I I want you to know that there is some real relevance here in regards to so many of you. Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll use this to lead into our time of communion. Listen to these words as I read this. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You get what he's saying here? Paul's talking to to the church at Ephesus. And he's saying, you were, past tense, you were dead in your sin. And you were an object of God's wrath. That's just another way of saying, you were on the road to hell. This is pretty serious stuff here. But then the beginning of verse 4, you find the word but. That transitionary word, which so many times is such a beautiful word, especially in texts like this. He says, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. Even, Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And then go down a couple verses, verse eight. It is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that anyone should boast. If you are a believer, if you're a follower of Christ, you are saved. You are not on the road to hell. You are on the road to heaven. But God is extending that opportunity to you, not because you were deserving of it. Because he looked at you and said, man, that person's holding a lot of promise. And you know what? They really do deserve to come to heaven, so I'm going to go ahead and save them. No. It's not by works. It's not by merit. It's not by anything that you've done on your part. It's because of his love and abundant grace and mercy that he's made it possible for you to go from being dead to being alive in Christ. During communion, this is what we're doing, is we're reflecting on that. We're remembering the fact that I was dead in my sin, but I am alive in Christ. And what made that possible is what Jesus did on my behalf. When Jesus went to the cross, he took my place. He took my guilt of my sin upon himself, and he paid that penalty. And in exchange, he gave me his righteousness so I could be in the very presence of my creator for all of eternity. Don't just take communion as a ritualistic, just jump through the hoop sort of thing. Let this be a prayerful time of reflection as you remember what it is the Lord has done. The greatest of his miracles is a miracle that he's done for your sake and for my sake. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for being so good to us, even though we're not deserving of it. We celebrate it. We celebrate it as a family of believers. And I pray that the gratitude that we have in our heart is not just something that that rises to the surface in a service like this on a Sunday morning. I hope it does happen here when we're together as a family of believers. But I pray that this gratitude is evident in our life when we leave this place, when we live out our life in our homes and in our workplaces and as we interact with social contacts we have or even when we're totally by ourselves doing something solo. Might our gratitude be evident, Lord. That's the least we can do for all that you've done for us. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.